Peter chapter 5. First Peter is all about relationships. It describes how our salvation is to be worked out in the various relationships of life. And Peter has talked about our new relationship with God. He's talked about our new relationship with our brothers. He's talked about our new relationship with the world. He's talked about our new relationship with the government. He's talked about our new relationships in the workplace. He's talked about our new relationships in the home. He's talked about our new relationship with the circumstances of life, that is, trials and suffering. And now he closes this letter by mentioning one last relationship. He closes this letter by reminding us that we have a new relationship with the devil. And in verses 8 to 14, Peter is going to tell us five ways we're to deal with the devil. First, we're to recognize him. Verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about. The first thing that Peter says is that you are to be alert. You are to be on your toes. You better recognize that the devil is out there. Now, most people don't. In his book, What Americans Believe, George Barna asked a cross-section of America this question, Do you believe that there is one true God who is holy and perfect and who created the world and who rules it today? Three out of four Americans said yes. He then asked those same, that same group of people this question, Do you believe in the existence of the devil and that he is more than just a symbol of evil? Only one out of four said yes. Three out of four people believe in God, but only one out of four people believe in the devil. And you know what? That's just fine with the devil. Because as long as people view him as a figment of human imagination, as long as people view him as a mythological character, then they won't take him seriously. In the popular mind, the devil is a funny little man in long red underwear with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. In fact, he's portrayed in such a docile and harmless way that he does commercials. He's so attractive that he promotes... I mean, you, you can see him on the label of paint cans and power tools and various foods. He sells things today. And if you fall for the myth that he's merely a comical little character in red tights then he's got you right where he wants you. Heard a story about two young boys who were walking home from Sunday school. They had been studying the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Little Johnny said to his friend Pete, do you believe that stuff about the devil? I mean, do you think there really is a devil? And Pete looked at him and said, nah. It's just like Santa Claus. It's your dad. Peter says the first thing we need to do is recognize him. He says, be of sober spirit. 
Literally, that means don't be intoxicated. Metaphorically, it means don't be spiritually intoxicated. Don't swallow the message this world is sending out. Your posture is to be one of discipline and self-control. And then he says, be on the alert. That is, be awake. Be watchful. He said in verse 7, we are to be carefree. But now he says in verse 8, we are not to be careless. We're to be disciplined and alert. We're to be on guard. We are to recognize that the devil is out there. It was Manuel's first amateur fight. And he was getting beat to a pulp by his opponent. Mercifully, the bell rang, signaling the end of the first round, and the weary boxer made his way back to the corner, and the trainer met him there, and the trainer said, Man, you're doing great. He hasn't hardly laid a glove on you. Here, have some water, and then get out there and get him. So Manuel went out for the second round, and it was even worse than the first. He was getting pummeled all over. Finally, he got knocked down, but he was saved by the bell at the count of nine. Trainer came out, helped him to the corner, toweled him off, said, you've got him right where you want him. You're in great shape. He hasn't hardly touched you. Now get out there and put him away. Well, the third round was much of the same. Manuel was lucky to stagger back to his corner at the bell. Both eyes were nearly swollen shut. His mouth was bleeding. There was a cut above one eye. The trainer was still trying to encourage his young fighter, and so he said, man, he's hardly hit you at all. Barely laid a glove on you. I think you can take him this round. Now get out there and get him. Manuel looked at the trainer, and he said, okay, if, if he hasn't hardly touched me, I'm going to go out and get him this time, but would you keep an eye on the ref because somebody's beating the dickens out of me? I think a lot of people are that same way with the devil. They're getting the dickens beat out of them spiritually, and they can't figure out who's doing it. And so Peter says the first thing we need to do is recognize him. Second thing is respect him. And what I mean by that is we need to respect him because he's dangerous. You see, he's not hopping around in red tights. Look at verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, he doesn't say he is a roaring lion. He says he's like a roaring lion. And why does he say he's like a roaring lion? Well, that's in keeping with the analogy he already laid out in verse 2 of the church being a flock of sheep. You remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 17 what David had to kill to defend his father's sheep. He had to kill a lion and a bear. Peter is telling us that our enemy is a sheep's worst nightmare. A roaring lion. Now notice something. Peter calls the devil your adversary. See, he's not just God's enemy. He's your enemy. This is a personal thing. 
Your greatest threat is not big banks. Your greatest threat is not heart disease. Your biggest threat is not the shrinking ozone layer. Your biggest threat is your adversary, the devil. Now let me remind you of something. He was not always your adversary. You know what your relationship was to the devil before you were saved? Well, little Pete wasn't too far off. The devil was your daddy. Jesus looked into the eyes of the people in the temple in John 8, 44, and he said, you are of your father, the devil. 1 John 3, 10 tells us that there are only two families in this world. There are the children of God and there are the children of the devil. You are in either one of those families or the other. You were born into the family of the devil. You are born again into the family of God. Now that's not a very flattering pedigree. But my point is this. The devil's primary prey is not unbelievers. You know why? Because he's already got them. He already possesses them. They're already on his team. They're already in his family. You see, the devil doesn't have to do battle with unbelievers. He just has to keep them in the family. He just has to keep them captive in his kingdom. And you know how he does that? He does that by keeping them away from the gospel. When Jesus told the parable of the sower, he said, Satan is like the birds that come in and devour the seed that falls by the way. And when the seed of the gospel is proclaimed and it falls on the hearts of unbelievers, Satan likes to come and take it away before it has time to penetrate and before that person has time to believe. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What does Satan do? He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they won't see the light of the gospel. Now, why is Satan so afraid of the gospel? Well, because that's what sets people free. That's what allows people to be born again into the family of God. But you see, when Satan loses you, when you become a believer, you now have a new relationship with the devil. He is now your adversary. Now, how does he attack you? Well, we can pick out two ways in this verse. First way, he seeks to discredit you. And that's clear from the titles given to him. He's called your adversary. Now that's a general term for enemy, but it was a word that was used more specifically of a legal opponent or of a prosecuting, prosecuting attorney. And the, and the title or the name devil means literally slanderer or accuser. You see, the devil tries to discredit you before God by accusing you of all the wrong things you have done and all the wrong things you continue to do. 
Revelation 12.10 says He accuses us before our God day and night. He is there 24 hours a day pressing charges. But you know what? That isn't a very effective tactic. Because 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that word advocate means defense lawyer. We have a defense lawyer who's far better than Johnny Cochran. And when Satan comes as the prosecuting attorney before God and he says, look at Dan Green. Look what he's done. How could he ever claim to be your child? He deserves to be thrown out of the family. He deserves the death penalty. Jesus Christ steps forward as my defense lawyer and He says, I've already paid the price for that sin. But you know, not only does He seek to discredit you before God, He also seeks to devour you. This verse says He's like a roaring lion. He wants to chew you up. He wants to rip you to threads. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your testimony. Now, how is he trying to do that? We know when he seeks to destroy you physically, he shows up like a hungry, roaring lion. He shows up trying to intimidate you. You say, well, what ways can the devil get at me physically? Well, Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death. The devil was able to actually take Christians and throw them into prison. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul said that Satan hindered him from coming to visit the church at Thessalonica. How he did that, I don't know. But physically, he stopped Paul from going. In the book of Job, Satan came after Job like a roaring lion. He brought illness. He brought loss. He even brought the death of his loved ones. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says he received a thorn in the flesh and he calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet me. What was the thorn in his flesh? It was some kind of medical malady. And he says it came from Satan and it came to buffet me. That that word means to beat me up. It came to beat me black and blue. You see, sometimes Satan shows up like a roaring lion and physically he wants to rip us up. But I hope you know that when Satan wants to devour us spiritually, he usually doesn't show his teeth. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He usually shows up looking like someone he's not. And in that case, he doesn't show up roaring. He shows up whispering. Because you see, Satan's greatest weapon is deceit. Revelation 20.10 calls him the devil who deceived them. That's his M.O. 
In John 8, 44, Jesus said He is the Father of lies. He is the originator of lying, and He is the best that there is. And Satan knows that if he can get you to believe his lies, he will devour you much faster than he will if he comes after you physically. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven three, it says that just like the serpent deceived Eve, he wants to lead you astray. Now, did you ever think about what kind of things Satan whispers to you? Do you ever think about what kind of deception he tries to spin in your life? You know, I looked through the New Testament this week, and I found that the Bible talks a lot about snares of the devil, which are traps that he sets. And it talks a lot about us giving him an opportunity. You see, his tactic for getting into our life is to set traps for us to fall in, but it's also to look at our life and to find an opportunity where he can get an inroad. And I want to remind you this morning of some of the opportunities that we often give him. 1 Timothy 3, 6. Paul warns us against becoming conceited because he says when we do, we fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. When you get puffed up with pride, you are giving the devil an opportunity in your life. In fact, you are acting just like he acts. So you are essentially walking the same path that he's walking when you allow pride to rise up in your life. Peter said to Ananias in Acts 5.3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? When we allow ourselves to lie to other people, who are we acting like? We're acting just like Satan. And when we allow lies to develop in our life, we are giving Satan an opportunity to come and camp out in us. In 1 Timothy 5.13, Paul warns widows not to be idle. Widows who had a lot of extra time, he says, don't be idle. Why not? Because that leads them to become gossips and busybodies. And then he says in verse 15 that when they do that, they have turned aside to follow Satan. Maybe you remember the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. That comes from this verse. When you're allowing yourself to be idle so that then you then find more time to be slandering other people, you're acting just like the devil who is the slanderer. Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So you may have a right to be angry, but you don't have a right to stay angry. When anger goes unresolved, the devil takes that as an opportunity to turn your anger into bitterness. And that's one of the quickest ways that he can devour you. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says we need to forgive others 
Listen, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. When you find yourself rationalizing and saying, sure, she apologized, but I know she didn't mean it, so I'm not going to forgive her, you're giving the enemy an opportunity. Because Satan will take your unforgiving heart and he will use it not only to destroy you, but to destroy and divide the body of Christ. Jesus warned us in Matthew 7:15 to beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You see, Satan is not alone in his endeavor of lying to us. He has a whole regiment of people who are doing that work as well called false teachers, false prophets. What is their message? Their message is that God's Word isn't really true. That this is just a bunch of fanciful stories and opinions of men. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says that Satan's servants disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And throughout the world this very morning, there are men standing in pulpits who are twisting and distorting the truth of God. And there's nothing more destructive than that. 1 Timothy 3.7 says, you have to have a good reputation with those outside the church so that you won't fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. See, if you listen to his quiet lie, then it's okay to live one way on Sunday and another way on Saturday night. If you listen to his lie that it's okay to compartmentalize your life into the sacred and the secular, you will pretty soon fall into hypocrisy. There's a story of a man who came down from the Carolina mountains. He was all dressed up but carrying his Bible under his arm. A friend saw him and asked him, Eli, what's happening? Why are you all dressed up like that? And Eli said, I've been hearing about New Orleans. I hear that there's a lot of free-running liquor there and I hear there's a lot of gambling there and I hear there's a lot of real naughty shows there. And the friend paused for a moment and he looked him over and he said, But Eli, why are you carrying your Bible under your arm? And Eli said, Well, if it's as good as they say it is, I just might stay till Sunday. If people outside the church are looking at your life and saying he's a hypocrite, Satan is devouring your reputation. Let me give you one more. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. Paul says, Husbands and wives are to fulfill their duties to each other. And if they don't, he says in verse 5, Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If you are not fulfilling the spouse in your house, Satan takes that opportunity to offer you other options. Now, if you didn't get it, that was a subtle advertisement for our marriage conference. September 29th and 30th. 
Satan is out to devour you. He will do it blatantly, like a lion, and he'll do it subtly, like a serpent. But either way, you better respect him, because he's dangerous. Third way we deal with the devil is we resist him. Verse 9. He says, but resist him. Now underline that and notice what it doesn't say. doesn't say attack him. Your job is not to go out looking for the enemy. If you're making an impact for God, he's going to find you. Also notice that it doesn't say bind him or pray that God will bind him. You know, that's a popular approach today, but as I look at Scripture, I find absolutely no precedent for me to be asking God to bind Satan. In fact, the Bible tells me in Revelation 20 that Satan is not going to be bound until an angel is sent from God and binds him for a thousand years for the millennium. And until then... He's free. Until then, he's not bound. Until then, verse 8 says, he prowls about. Remember Job chapter 1 and verse 7? The Lord said to Satan, where have you been? And Satan said, I've come from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. You see, he was doing then what he's still doing now. He was prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour And remember, God said to him, have you tried chewing on Job? And Satan said, I can't get to him because you've got a hedge around him, and God removed the hedge. How do we deal with the devil? He says, verse 9, resist him. That's always God's answer. Ephesians 6.13 says, when we find ourselves up against the schemes of the devil, we're to resist James 4, 7 says, resist the devil. You're to resist him. You say, how do you do that? Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. You see, the way you resist Satan is with faith. His strategy is to come to you and say, believe me and don't believe God. So how do you resist him? You resist him by simply trusting God. You resist him by simply standing firm on the truth of God. In fact, that's what Jesus did when Satan tempted him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. He resisted by simply saying, I believe what God says. You know what Satan did after Jesus did that? He left. You know what? You've got a great promise, and that is when you resist the devil, by faith, he'll do the same thing. Mark this verse if you never have. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Fourth way we deal with the devil is we reassess him. And what I mean by that is if we will take a little bit different perspective on the situation we'll see things differently. If we'll take a second look, we will see several things. I've listed four of them. Number one, you're not alone. Look at verse 9 at the end. He says, knowing 
that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. All over the world, Christian brothers and sisters are going through the same kind of experiences of suffering that you are. And it helps to have that perspective. If you ask Coach Billings this morning, what's the big deal about the home field advantage? You say, well, the, the, you know, the, the field's the same size, the stripes are the same, the rules are the same. What's the big deal about the home field advantage? Well, the home field advantage means that all throughout the stands, there are people who are shouting encouragement to the players. And that makes a difference. And Peter is reminding us that we have that same home field advantage if we'll simply look around. We've got others around us who can shout encouragement to us in the midst of the battle. You see, when we take a second look at Satan's attacks, we realize that we're not alone. And then secondly, we realize that this is only temporary. Look at the end of verse 9. If he says at the end of verse 9, there are brethren in the world, what does that imply? There are also brethren who are no longer in the world. There are also brethren who are out of this world, who have graduated from suffering into glory. And then notice what he says in verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little, the God of all grace, who called you into His eternal glory in Christ. Stop right there. Did you catch that? I want you to circle two words. One is, suffering is for a little. Glory is eternal. That's the perspective we need. It's a little suffering, but it's going to be eternal glory. You ever notice that sometimes life seems long? Finals week always seems long, doesn't it? For some of you, this sermon seems long. (laughs) A time of suffering always seems long. But Peter says, when you take a second look in the light of eternal glory, you'll see that it's only temporary. And then the third thing, God has a purpose in it. Look at verse 10 again. And after you have suffered for a little, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And those are all words that mean about the same thing. What is God doing behind the scenes in those attacks by the enemy? He's perfecting and confirming and strengthening and establishing you. And I want you to notice the phrase. Notice what it says. God will Himself perfect you. I love that. While you are being personally attacked by the enemy, you are being personally perfected by God. God has a purpose in it. Remember when Satan wanted to come after Job, he had to get permission. Why did God give Job... In fact, God introduced the idea of going after Job. 
Why did God allow Satan to go after Job? Well, Job tells us that once he came through that fiery trial, he came through like gold. And he tells us at the end of his book, he said, I used to hear about God with the hearing of my ear. But now I see him with my eyes. The trial he went through, the suffering he went through at the hand of Satan brought him into a deeper, richer relationship with God. God had a purpose. Remember what Jesus told Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one. 31? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Did you catch that? Satan had to get permission to do it. Why did Jesus give him that permission? Well, you remember what Peter was saying at that time. He was saying, even though all the others may fall away, I never will fall away. What was Peter's problem? He was full of pride. And so Jesus allowed Satan to be part of the teaching process in giving Peter an important lesson in humility. When Paul prayed three times in 2 Corinthians 12 for God to take away the thorn in his flesh, which was a messenger from Satan, why did God say no? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, that God was using Satan to keep Paul from exalting himself. You see, when you take a second look at the attacks of the enemy, you'll see that God has a purpose in them. And then fourth, God is still on his throne. Yeah, you've got an enemy. Yes, he's ferocious. Yes, he can inflict great suffering on you. But I want you to notice who is also here in verse 10. He's called the God of all grace. What did God say to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? My grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to leave you with that thorn in the flesh, but I'm going to give you my grace. And even though Satan is the ruler of this world, and even though he acts like he's got total control, notice what Peter says in verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That word dominion is only used this one time in the New Testament. It means strength, power, control. What is he saying? God is on his throne. Even when you're going through the suffering of life, God is on his throne. See, when you take a, a second look at Satan's attacks, you'll see you're not alone. It's only temporary. God has a purpose in it, and God is still on his throne. Fifth way and final way we deal with the devil is to restrain him. Now, as Peter closes this letter... He reminds us of two things. And these two things may have nothing to do with what he just said, but I think they have a lot to do with what he just said. Because I think if you'll do these two things, you'll be far less vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And if you don't do these two things, you'll be like a limping lamb wandering alone through the woods. What are the two things? Number one, get a sure footing. Verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you 
briefly. Now, Peter lets us know he dictated this letter through Silvanus. Silvanus, in its shortened form, is Silas. There's no reason not to think this is the same Silas that traveled earlier with Paul on his missionary journeys. And like a typical preacher, Peter says, I have written to you briefly. But then notice what he says about the content of his letter at the end of verse 12. He says, I am exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What did Paul discover was sufficient when you're being assaulted by the enemy? The grace of God. And Peter tells us where we can get it right here. When you are grounded in the Word of God and the enemy approaches, he's going to be restrained from having the same effect he would have on you if you were not. And so Peter says, I want you to have a sure footing. I want you to stand firm on the true grace of God. And then there's a second thing he says to do, and that is get a solid embrace. Sure footing and a solid embrace. Verse 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Now, Peter sends greetings from the church at Babylon. Now, most Bible teachers don't think he's talking about the literal Babylon. Babylon is used figuratively in Revelation 17 and 18 to refer to Rome. And it would seem at this point in time, Peter was probably in the city of Rome because it wasn't long after this that he would be martyred in that very city. You say, well, then why doesn't he just say, I'm sending greetings from the church at Rome? Well, because Rome was the epicenter of the persecution. Persecution was coming from the emperor. And so Peter wants to hide the identity of these people by using a cryptic name. But his readers would know that he was sending greetings from a church that knew all about what it was like to suffer. And then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, and I also send you greetings from my son, Mark. Mark was not Peter's literal son. He was his spiritual son. And he sends greetings from him as well. And I think there's a subtle message here also. You see, Peter is writing, and Peter is the one who knew what it was like to get run over by Satan. He knew what it was like to be sifted like wheat and to fail momentarily. And now Peter's writing the letter and say, hey, I'm standing again. And he mentions Mark. What do we know about Mark? He's the guy who went out on the first missionary journey with Paul and things got tough and he quit. He sends a message from Mark. Mark's one who got run over by the enemy, failed momentarily, and now he's back on his feet again. And what Peter is doing here is he's sending a, an embrace of loving fellowship from Christians who understand. And then he closes in verse 14. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Embrace one another in love. You see, that embrace, that fellowship is important all the time, but it's especially important when you're under attack from the enemy. So how do we deal with the devil? Recognize him by being alert. 
Respect Him. He's dangerous. Resist Him by believing God. Reassess Him. See, you're not alone. It's only temporary. God has a purpose in it. God is still on His throne. And restrain Him by getting a sure footing on the Word of God and by having the solid embrace of Christian fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that reminds us of a relationship we often forget, and that is that we've got an enemy. And Lord, we thank You, as was prayed earlier, that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And yet, Father, I pray that we might apply the principles that You've given us, that we might stand sure on Your Word, that we might take the solid embrace of brothers and sisters to help us to resist that evil one. And Lord, that we might be those that amidst the battle are found standing to your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.